Good morning, ladies. Welcome back. Most of you, some of you are here for the first time. Uh, so excited to get this semester started. I was just telling these ladies over here, it's so fun to hear the buzz. Just everybody talking, and I hope your group time went well, and you did some good connecting and learning. So welcome. I am grateful you are here. Uh, I am so excited to teach this book, this Gospel of Mark, and I, often people tell me, Amy, you say that every time, uh, and, it, and it's true, I do, but you can just ask my husband. I've just been, he'll say, so how's your study going, and then he gets 20 minutes of, and you know what happens in Mark 4, and, and I just am bubbling over with all that I'm learning, just wonderful stuff. How many times have I read the Gospel of Mark, you know, and uh, many, uh, and just learning new things that I've, I've never heard before or never known before, so uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, now, speak, and I, my apologies to those of you who could do this yourself, but I am, we do have some new people. I am going to introduce myself and my family and the study, and y'all can take a little nap. But um, speaking of my husband, I've been married for 28 years, not to the girl, <laughs> to the man who's the father of the girl, which is what, which reminds me of one of my favorite, I got to tell this story. I, if I go over time, I'm so sorry I told this story, but one of my favorite stories is when Katie, that's our daughter, was little. My name is Amy Kieser. It's Kieser. There used to be on KGBI, some of you remember, Jeff Kaiser. We're in church, and somebody comes up to Katie, and I'm standing there, and says, I listen to your daddy on the radio. I said, oh no, that's not her daddy. And the woman goes like this, I go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that's her dad, this is her daddy, yeah, but that Jeff Kaiser is not mine. <laughs> so uh, that's, yeah, that's my husband of 28 years, and I have to tell you that I am more in love with that man today than I was on August 10th, 1986. He is such a wonderful man. And uh, one of the things I've just realized recently that just I love the most is that after 28 years, he can still surprise me sometimes. He'll do something like, well, I didn't see that coming, in a good way, in a good, well, sometimes in a bad way, mostly in a good way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful man. And we have three kids, and, and our daughter is our middle child. These are all three of them together. Um, and our oldest is the hairy one. That's Josh. He's not nearly so hairy now because he has a new job that he can't be so hairy uh, for. So, uh, and uh, he just started. He's in training to be an assistant family teacher at Boys Town. And it's going so well. And he's learning about why, what he's been created to do and what he's been put on the planet to do. And that is so excited. He's thrilled. We're thrilled. God is good. Katie is 19, our daughter. She's a little upset that I put this uh, picture on our Christmas card. She's without makeup. This, by the way, was after a rousing family tradition, Thanksgiving family tradition, uh, of a game of Ultimate Pumpkin. You know this game? No. Ultimate Pumpkin is like Ultimate Frisbee, if you know that game. But you play it with a greased pumpkin. And as the pumpkin breaks apart, you just pick up the biggest piece you can find and you keep going. And we have my brother-in-law, my 60 
one-year-old, I think, brother-in-law played, and um, my niece Lucy was in and out of the game. She's six, so, uh, or almost six. So uh, the whole family, well, I don't play. I cheer. Yay! Uh, but uh, the whole family plays, and it's a lot of fun. So that's when this picture was taken. Katie is a freshman at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. She's majoring in social work. And to those of you to whom I told the story that she was in a very, very quiet dorm with people that only wanted to study, and she was getting in trouble for like talking and singing in the shower uh, and things like that. My, my Katie, those of you that know my Katie, so not quiet. She's just like off the charts, bubbly. And um, in fact, her number one, you can probably guess, her number one, she took the strengths finder test, number one, positivity. She read her five to me and I'm like, honey, I, I, could, I could have told you that. <laughs> you didn't need to take strengths finder, but uh, she did. So, um, so she was just outgoing, and her dorm was not, and it was a bad situation. So she moved to a new dorm, and uh, she has two roommates who are just like her. They're having so much fun. The first night, everybody was back. They dressed up in black, went downtown for dinner, and gave a funeral for 2014. So that, <laughs> that is where Katie is living now, and that fits her so much better. She's happy. We're happy. God is good. And then our youngest, uh, which I used to say my little guy, my little guy's six feet tall now, so I can't say that. He's a freshman at Cornerstone Christian School. Uh, he did really well his first semester because I keep, you know, telling him, hey, grades are money. <laughs> grades are money. The colleges give you money for the grades. So he did really well. We're happy about that. However, all you really need to know is it's basketball season, and he's playing well. So he's happy, <laughs> we're happy, and God is good. And then the last member of our family, although we just added a new one, this is uh, Barkley the Wonder Sheepoo. It kind of depresses me. He's nine years old now, and I just realized that over Christmas break, and I'm like, really, my dog's nine? I can't believe my dog's nine. But uh, he's just a fabulous dog. One of the best things about Barkley is when it snows, I get to play my own little personal Where's Waldo game when he goes outside to go potty. Where's the dog? I can't see him out there. You get to do that too, don't you? Yeah. Um, he is cute, and he's a sweetheart. We've added a member of the family in the last day. We discovered we have a mouse somewhere loose in the house. Yeah, we did not mean to give that mouse a cookie. I hope he won't be with us long, but uh, I won't check the traps, though. The men have to. That's why you have boys around. They can check the traps. So the study, um, I won't leave Barkley up there. We'll, we'll put Papias's quote up there for you. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, otherwise, you won't be paying attention to me. You'll be looking at Barkley. Uh, the study... Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit. My, I'm a simple gal. I have a simple philosophy when I come to God's word. I want to know what does it say, what does it mean, and how can I apply it to my life? I believe there is value in just knowing what God's word says. I'm a part-time, and don't laugh, please, when I say this. I'm a part-time elementary PE teacher. <laughs> I laugh when I say that. I, I teach elementary PE two days a week. It's just the best time. I believe I could make extra money by selling tickets to watch the kindergartners skip, jump rope, any, really anything. If it weren't illegal and I'd lose my job, I would videotape it and put it on YouTube. But uh, it's just adorable. And one, the, one of the ways we stretch is we do verses with actions. And right now we're doing, I almost did this in church last Sunday, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. You know what? They don't know what that means. But I believe there's value that they keep hearing, the Lord is my shepherd, even if they don't know what it means. But of greater value is knowing what it means. Uh, and we do this all the time when we come to Scripture and we think we know what it means and we don't. Let me tell you, when we get to Mark 11, I'm so excited. You've heard the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree? 
And if you're like me, I'm like, what's he taking out his anger on a, a little fig tree? Why is he doing that? There's a reason. And it's exciting. And it's meaningful. I'd never heard it before. Now I know what that parable means. And there's greater value in that. But the most value, the highest value, is when God's word penetrates through our minds to our hearts and is lived out in our lives, how we can apply that to our lives. And every semester, that's my prayer for all of us, that we would not just learn God's word so we can know God's word. That's a good thing. But it's a better thing to live God's word. A lot of Mark is about discipleship, how we live out what we believe. And um, that's exciting to get to teach. The questions that you have now, almost all of them. This is the first time in a long time, like 13 years, that I'm starting to teach uh, a study that I haven't completely written yet. Uh, But that's a long story how that happened. I still have two more weeks left to write. You'll have those before we get there. By faith, I'm saying that. Uh, So you'll have those before we get there. But uh, the, the questions that you have, there are five days worth of questions each week. So you'll see at the top, day one, and then day two, and day three. Uh, And they're approximately, and this is a little longer than in the past, so I don't want to shock some of you, but uh, they're approximately nine to 12 questions per day. And it will probably take you 20 to 25 minutes, again, a little longer than it has in the past, uh, to do that. Um, And that, the reason it's longer is that we're dealing with a lot more material. For example, when we did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Jude last semester, we had eight chapters, eight much shorter chapters. Now we have 16 much longer chapters. In fact, chapter 14 alone is 72 verses. So we've got a lot of material um, to get through. Uh, There are three kinds of questions that you'll find. Most of them are just regular questions. They just have a number. Some of them say next to the number, thought provoker. Those questions are questions that are designed to provoke thought. Uh, they, They are designed to make you think. They're not just, oh yeah, I know the answer. And sometimes you won't know the answer. Sometimes I don't know the answer, and I wrote the question. So, you know, if you leave that blank, that's that's fine. If you if you think about it and you're like, I have no idea what she's talking about, it could be because you're not thinking of the answer. It could be because I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but you can leave it blank, and we'll talk about it when we get. Usually, I lecture over those ones that are thought provokers. When we get to class, we'll talk about it. And then uh, the third kind of question is a challenge question, which will require you, might require you to look someplace else in the Bible or outside the Bible to get the answer. There are not um, many of those. Let me just back up and say, so for next week you're reading Mark 1, and you read and you do the studies on, the the questions on Mark 1, and then you go to, uh, when you come here on Tuesday morning, you go and discuss those questions with your leader in your group, and then you'll come here and I'll lecture on them. So that's the way the study works. At the beginning of each week of questions, there's a memory verse. Just give it a shot. Just do the best you can. You might be surprised. I do want to throw out, kind of throw down the gauntlet with a little challenge. Yesterday, I listened to our second graders at Cornerstone who have all of, already have all of Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 memorized, repeat from memory, stopping by a woods on a snowy night, snowy evening, by Robert Frost. The whole poem. Second graders. So, and I know some of you are like, I'm older than that. They're young. It's not all that. It's not all that. It's, uh, so just give it a shot and, and see what you can do. Now, uh, if you don't get your questions done, please still come. 
Don't feel like, I can't go, I didn't do the study this week. Please still come. We're all busy women, nobody will judge you, I promise. And you can still participate in the, the, the discussion uh, with your group. Um, having said that, I believe the study works best when you do the time at home and do the questions at home, you come and talk about those with your group, and then you listen to the lecture. But you get nothing out of it if you stay home and don't come and participate in the group and in the lecture. So please come. Having said that, because this text is significantly longer um, and because um, uh, you know, we, we have so much to go through, I will, not pro I will probably not be doing what I've done in the past, which is read through the entire text and teach through the entire text. There will, you guys know I can take four verses and spend 45 minutes on them. So if I do that this time, we'll be here like, you know, until Wednesday afternoon. Um, so we, you know, I probably won't be doing that. So I do think that spending the time at home uh, is going to be extra important uh, this, this, for this particular study. And you all know that God's word never returns void, and Mark is worth every minute of effort you put into it at home. Now, I want to make sure I tell you my qualifications, in part because if you don't know them, you need to know them and you need to be impressed by them, in part because I just like saying them. Here are my qualifications to do this. I love God's word, and I love to teach. That's it. I have no advanced degrees, I have a bachelor's degree from St. Olaf College in social studies education and physical education, which means that when my children play trivia crack, I'm a big help on the questions about history, geography, and sports. And then they go, I won! And I'm like, you won? <laughs> Seriously? I even got a science one on, on the sign for sodium or something like that. On the, yeah, isn't that something? I pulled that out of somewhere. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, so, but in terms of what we do here, here are my qualifications. I love God's word, and I love to teach. I love doing this, and I hope it shows, but um, that's, that's the only qualification that I bring to the table. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark over the centuries has gotten some bad press, and this kind of surprised me. It has been judged by some, uh, some theologians as being rather, quote-unquote, artless. Uh, in fact, some guy with a doctor in front of his name, no doubt, of the, with the last name of Dane, wrote this. Mark was neither a historian nor an author. He assembled his material in the simplest manner thinkable. A guy named Dr. Rudolf Boltmann, who I studied in college and who I would recommend you read nothing that he's ever written, um, he's the guy that said that Jesus didn't actually physically rise from the dead. I've told you that story before when I learned that in college. Uh, he's had similar um, assessment, had a similar assessment of Mark. But here's my favorite one by a guy named Dr. I'm sure J. Marsh. He says, the point is settled, probably in a British accent. The point is settled. The author of Mark was a clumsy writer unworthy of mention in any history or literature. I literally wrote when I read that in my commentary. Really? Has anything you ever written been canonized? I thought not. <laughs> Fortunately, more recent scholarship as, as some things have been learned about Mark and when it was written, um, have, has been more positive. 
uh, I think people have, uh, scholars have finally come to realize, wow, this guy had more going on upstairs than we thought. Here's my assessment of Mark. It's amazing. It is an amazing piece of writing. It has made me think more deeply, and it has challenged me in my faith more deeply than just about any other book of the Bible I've ever taught. Uh, and it's challenged me on so many levels. Mark wrote his gospel in everyday language so that people could understand. Sometimes the most brilliant people are the people that can explain deep things in a way that everybody can understand. That's Tim Weeby, by the way. Um, he's as brilliant a person as I've met, and yet he makes the things of God that are up here available here. That's Mark. He wrote in everyday language that people could understand, but the depth of his themes and his, um, his theology is phenomenal. Mark is the earliest gospel. Of the four gospels, it was written first. Now, for a long time, scholars didn't realize that. They thought that Mark just cribbed from Matthew and Luke because he wasn't smart enough to write his own gospel and um, was written much later. But Mark is actually the earliest gospel account, and Matthew and Luke probably had access to it. They didn't crib from it, but they probably had access to it. Now, you might say, well, how does she know that? It's a complicated answer, but based on the internal and external evidence we have of when Mark was written, which we'll get to in a minute, um, it, it makes sense that Mark is the earliest gospel. Now, I want to back up a little bit and talk about what we call the synoptic gospels, so you understand this term terminology. The synoptic gospels are the gospels that have a lot of similarities uh, between them, and that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And although there are differences in themes and, and there are differences in style, they share a lot of the same material. And the genre is essentially the same. They are accounts about what Jesus did and what he said. Although Mark is about what, more about what Jesus did than said, and the other two are more about what Jesus said than did, that is generally what they're about. John is not one of the synoptic gospels. It's a gospel, but it's kind of a different sort of gospel. Instead of parables, John records lengthy conversations and lengthy teaching um, and sermons of Jesus. It is much more theological. It's much more about who Jesus was. He is the good shepherd. Uh, he, is, he is the word, the word of God. He is those things. And so it's much more about that. Not that the others aren't about who Jesus is, but John's is, is a different sort of writing. As soon as you open it up and it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You're like, whoa, this is a different sort of gospel. Uh, and so John is different. The early church, this is something I never knew before, by the way. The early church, gospel was a word that had been in use before um, the writing of, of the New Testament. But the early church only used that word, gospel, evangelion, in the singular, never in the plural. It never referred to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just the Gospel. It was considered to be one Gospel in four versions. Uh, and that is what we have. Now, let's talk about the who, when, and where of Mark. The who is Mark. However, all four of the Gospels are anonymous. Nowhere does it say, like Paul does, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Nowhere does it say that. It doesn't tell us it's Mark. 
We call it the gospel according to Mark because the early church attributed it to Mark. Now, here's the problem. Mark is a common name. And like the other gospels, it's anonymous. So how do we know it's Mark, and how do we know which Mark it is? Well, the very, very early church tradition attributes the gospel to Mark. In fact, this is what Papias wrote, who I know sounds like a fruit, but it's a guy. And uh, he wrote this late in the first century, like around A.D. 90, he wrote this. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all the things that he remembered, not indeed in order of all the things said and done by the Lord. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching. And he would give that teaching to Mark, and Mark faithfully wrote that down. Now, we have other church father, fathers, and I could put a lot of quotes up here, that corroborate this, that agree that Mark wrote uh, what Peter told him. Um, so Mark wrote faithfully and accurately what Peter taught him, although not everything was in chronological order, um, because that wasn't what was important to Mark. And that's not a problem, by the way, for most of the world. It's the Western mindset that goes, well, then it's not accurate. Well, then it doesn't match up with the others. Near, near Eastern historians are like, yeah, he wrote that for a thematic reason. He wrote that for a theological reason, that he placed something in a little bit different order than something else. Mark ordered his writing much more on what he was trying to teach, much more on the theology uh, than the actual timing. So it's Mark, but which Mark? Can we know which Mark wrote this? Because again, it was a common name. We can't be 100% sure which Mark it is, um, but the evidence points to a man who was known as John Mark, or in sometimes in the New Testament it calls him John, who was also known as Mark. That Mark, John Mark, uh, we learn a lot, quite a bit from, about him in the New Testament. We learn in Acts 12 that he was the son of a woman named Mary, uh, in whose house the early church used to gather in Jerusalem. In fact, in Acts 12, remember when Peter is miraculously released from prison? And he goes and he knocks on a door, and a servant girl goes, ah, it's Peter. And she goes and says, Peter's at the door. And they're like, shut up. Can't be Peter. He's in prison. That was Mary's house, the mother of John Mark. And that's where he, Peter knew they'd be there because that's where they regularly met. By the way, that may have been, don't quote me on this because we don't know for sure, that may have been the place for the Last Supper. The upper room may have been in Mary's house. Um, secondly, we know that John Mark, Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on one of their journeys. We also know that he wigged out, didn't like it very much, and left them. Uh, and so the next time Paul and Barnabas went on a journey, Barnabas said, let's take Mark. And Paul's like, no way. And they had such a huge argument that they separated from one another. Um, probably helped the spread of the gospel, actually. Now, the good news is that John Mark, after he wigged out, wigged back in again and came to his senses and, um, and he reconciled with, with Paul eventually. In fact, at the end of 2 Timothy, which is the last known thing that we have that Paul wrote, my friend Mark's favorite verse of the Bible is this, get Mark and bring him to me because he's useful in my ministry. That's the same Mark. Um, we also know that he, from 1 Peter that 
this Mark worked with, and, and possibly for, labored alongside Peter, which he'd have to be, right? Because Peter is the one that told him what to write in the gospel. It is unlikely that the early church would have accepted as, um, as authoritative a gospel written by someone who did not have a close connection to the apostles. And the only mark we know of that had that close of a connection to the apostles is John Mark. So does that make it absolutely certain that this, the same mark? No. But all evidence points to this mark as the mark. And that makes even more sense when we realize two things. The first is that Mark's gospel reads very much like an eyewitness account. There are even places where he says things like, and then he was walking on the water. I mean, it, it, it sounds like someone telling a story, just like Peter told him. He faithfully enacted. A lot of places where he uses present tense for past events. It reads very much like an eyewitness account. And it reads like Peter. Just trust me on this. Peter's my favorite apostle. I love Peter. He was a man of action. This is a short, action-filled gospel. It, I don't know how many times. I was asked the other day, how many times is the word immediately in Mark? I don't know, but it's a lot. And immediately they got out from there, and they went from here, and then, then they went here, and then they did this. Because in Mark, as one theologian said, we learn who Jesus is by what he does. And that's what uh, Mark is about, and that's very much, sounds very much like even Peter might have written it, although um, he's just the storyteller behind it. Now, what's, when was this written? Um, anyone who tells you that the New Testament was handed down verbally over and over and over again before it was finally written ha is selling you a bill of goods and has some reason why he wants to sell those goods. Mark was written very early. Uh, we can't know exactly when, but both external evidence, evidence outside the Bible, and internal evidence, evidence inside the book of Mark, give us a pretty close window when it was written. Um, early church fathers, again, those at the beginning, end of the first century, beginning of the second century, pin the date of the writing either just before or just after Peter died. Um, it was very close to the time of his death. He, Mark might have been writing it when Peter was alive and finishing it just shortly after he died. Mark, Peter died during Nero's reign, uh, and Nero ruled from A.D. 54 to A.D. 68. But the real persecution of Christians, the persecution that caused the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul, didn't start until A.D. 64, and here's why. In AD 64, there was a fire, you know this from history, that burned much of Rome. And it was rumored, which is not strong enough of a word, that Nero actually set that um, fire himself. I call it like the, the, the emperor's version of Munchausen syndrome. You know what I'm saying, you mothers of young kids? Like he set the fire to draw attention to himself, but he didn't want anyone to know it. And he wanted to be the kind of the hero that solved the problem of the fire. So Nero sets this fire. He realizes, oh my goodness, they know it's me. And so he has to have a scapegoat. And he blames the Christians for setting the fire to turn sentiment against the Christians and so he can have someone to persecute. And so it was after AD 64 that that persecution became 
uh, really, really intense. And it was during that time that both Peter and Paul were martyred. Um, and so the external evidence would, would be that it was written somewhere in the middle to late 60s A.D. The original 60s, not the 1960s. That's what we think of when we say 60s. That's what I think of. Um, so uh, that would be the external evidence. The if internal evidence, there's not a lot of it. But there's some interesting evidence. First of all, Mark's, Mark emphasizes Jesus as the suffering son of God. And it seems very much as though it's written to people who are in the midst of trial, who are in the midst of suffering. And in fact, we'll, I'll tell you in a minute that it's written to believers in Rome. And so it would make sense that it was written during this time of intense suffering. And it's really the only time in the early church that there was this intense of um, suffering. Because Caligula also persecuted Christians, but that was much earlier. Um, secondly, uh, it seems to have been written before the fall of the temple, but perhaps during the war with Rome. Now, this is a complicated explanation, so I'm not going to go into the details, but that war began in A.D. 66. At first, it seemed like the Jews were winning, but then Rome just shock and awed them and, and overran them. And by A.D. 70, it was done, it was over, and the temple was in ruins with nothing left but what we now know as the outer wall, the wailing wall, which isn't even really part of the temple itself. Um, and when we get there, I'll talk more about this in Mark, but it had to be before that's A.D. 70. It may have been before A.D. 66. The war may have started, um, but it certainly was before A.D. 70. So that, again, fits in that mid to late 60s uh, time frame. There are a couple other interesting things, but I'm not going to mention them now. They're more, as James Edwards puts it, opaque um, sorts of evidence. If that really trips your trigger, ask me later and I'll tell you what those are. The bottom line is a time frame of the mid to late 60s makes sense for the writing of the Gospel of Mark. So where was it written and to whom was it written? Well, Mark was written uh, certainly to Gentile Christians, most likely in Rome. The reason we know that it was Gentile Christians is that Peter takes the time, Peter, Mark takes the time to explain Jewish traditions that he wouldn't have to explain. It's like if I were writing to foreigners about the 4th of July, I would say, that's the celebration in the United States of, of the birth of the United States. If I were saying 4th of July to you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't explain that. You would all know that. So he takes the time to explain Jewish traditions. He even takes the time for some Aramaic words to translate them. Uh, so it wasn't people that, that spoke Aramaic or were familiar with Aramaic, which is what uh, Jews spoke in, in Jesus' day. So it was written to Gentile Christians, most likely in Rome. It was also most likely written from Rome, because Mark would have been with Peter, who was imprisoned in Rome and then martyred in Rome. So written from Rome. Now let's talk a little bit about the themes of the Gospel of Mark. I love these themes. The first one is discipleship, which in Mark is described as being with Jesus. That discipleship means being with Jesus, sitting with him, 
following him along the way, listening to him, hearing what he has to say. And sometimes doing so without totally understanding what he's all about. His disciples were growing in discipleship, but really didn't understand who Jesus was until after the resurrection. The second theme, uh, a second theme is faith. Hearing and responding without certainty of outcome. Hearing and responding without certainty of outcome. But faith is only faith when one follows Jesus Christ. One responds to Jesus Christ. This is how James Edwards puts it. He says, faith is not a magical formula, but depends on repeated hearing of his, of Jesus' word, and participation in his mission. Um, So in Mark, uh, there are two different responses to Jesus. One of faith, one that hears and responds to Jesus, and one of resistance. Sometimes willful resistance to what Jesus has said. A third theme in in Mark, and by the way, I cut a few out for time's sake, but um, a third theme, I think these are the three most important, and particularly in the second half of Mark is journey. The second half of Mark all takes place along the way as he was journeying toward Jerusalem, toward his death. And it it takes on uh, greater intensity because of that. Uh, Much of what is learned about Jesus in Mark is learned along the way with him. That's still true, isn't it? That as we walk with Jesus we learn of him. Now, I need to tell you that Mark has two endings. The first ending, the original ending, is in Mark 16, 8. And it is abrupt, to say the least. In fact, I'm going to read it to you. Because you just kind of go, say, what? So this is the end, the original ending, written by Mark. It says this. Um... The, the women have gone to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and others have gone to the tomb, and there's a, an angel there who speaks to them, and then verse 8 says this, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's the end. So some scribe somewhere went, well, that's not right. <laughs> we got to fix this, Mark. There have been people from the beginning that thought they needed to fix Mark, that Mark didn't know what he was talking about. We're going to find out that Mark did know what he was talking about. And he ended it like that and there for a reason. So you'll notice in your Bibles, Mark goes up to 1620. And those are post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Um, For our study, um, well, by the way, I need to tell you, I read two of my very favorite commentaries ever each over 600 pages long. Uh, Well, I'm not completely done with them. You know that. But anyway, close to being done with them. Uh, To to write this, they disagree with one another. One one teaches through 1620. One only goes up to 1608. For this study, we're going to go through 1620. And here's why. Um, I'm going to teach through that additional material because I believe it to be true. 
I mean, it's, it's known appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. So I'm going to, to teach through 1620 because I, even though it is not, Mark did not write that uh, part, uh, I believe it to be true, and it's in the Bible. It's in the canonized Bible. And so I will teach through it. I believe the Holy Spirit is strong enough and powerful enough to work through even this um, edition of Mark. At the same time, the last time Mark was taught in women's Bible study, I, I wasn't teaching, but it went through 16.8. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I wouldn't say it's wrong to do that. It's just my personal decision has been to teach um, to 16.20. So that's what we'll do. Now let's talk, we're going to end today about talking about Jesus and Mark. What we see, what we learn about Jesus in Mark. The undeniable focus of this gospel is Jesus. All but two of the stories are about Jesus. The other two are about John the Baptist. Jesus, as Mark Edwards, or not Mark Edwards, as uh, James Edwards says, Jesus is the uncontested subject of the gospel of Mark. That's good enough for me right there. That's, that makes it a great gospel in my book. In Mark, we learn about Jesus' authority. He speaks with authority. He acts with authority. He commands the demons and they obey him. He confronts the judges and he confronts and judges Israel's teachers and leaders. And they don't like it. And he presumes for himself that which only belongs to God. He heals. He forgives sin. Only God can do that. That's right. Only God can do that. In Mark, Jesus is presented as Messiah. That's what Christ means. He is Jesus. When you say Jesus Christ, you are saying Jesus the Messiah. And in Mark's gospel, he is presented as the Messiah. Old Testament prophecy presented Messiah as a conquering king. And that is what the people of Jesus' day thought Messiah would be. He would come and he would rid our land of these dirty, filthy Romans so that we can be free again. They did not see a silent lamb being led to slaughter on the cross as anything associated with Messiah. They didn't see that coming. In Mark, Jesus is presented as the suffering servant of God. That is also found in Old Testament prophecy, particularly in Isaiah. But the people of Jesus' day believed this person who was prophesied was different than the Messiah. He was not. In Mark, Jesus is presented as the Son of Man. That is Jesus' favorite term for himself. And only Jesus calls himself this. He is not called that elsewhere. The Son of Man is also prophesied about in the Old Testament, but people believed this person to be separate from Messiah and the suffering servant. He is not. In Mark, Jesus is presented as the Son of God. At the very beginning, the first verse says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And at almost the very end, a Roman centurion who helped crucify Jesus, after his death, looks up and says, surely this man was the Son of God. On the lips of one of his followers, on the lips of a Roman Gentile, um, um, Roman Gentile centurion, is the truth about Jesus, that he was and is the Son of God. That is both the first and last pronouncement of the Gospel of Mark, and it is the most important pronouncement of the Gospel of Mark. In one sense, Jesus was less than what people thought and expected of the Messiah. He did not slay the Romans. He was not a conquering king, at least not yet. Or he conquered something that they weren't expecting him to conquer. He conquered sin and death, not the Romans. That's a lot harder to do, by the way. Um, in another sense, Mark tells us that Jesus was and is so much more than, than we could ever imagine or expect. He is the Son of Man who shares and understands our experience as human beings. He is the suffering servant who bore our sins and received our punishment. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate in the flesh, fully human, fully divine. He is the Messiah who came first to bear our sins and will come again to bear us to himself so that we might live and reign with him forever. I just want to dive into this gospel right now and learn more about and from this Messiah servant king who is Christ the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the depth of your wisdom that is displayed in everyday common language in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus prayed before his death, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there is no other way. He is the way. Teach us that over and over again. May that truth be lived out in our lives along the way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. I'll see you next week.